you do not have to know everything about everything. And once you release that pressure off when it comes to your money, I think that's huge. You know, it's leaning into the things you know you're really good at, owning that, having fun with it. But it's also leaning into the idea that I don't have to know everything about everything. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I am pleased you are here for another fascinating conversation. This week, I am fortunate to have Dr. Erica Rasher on the podcast. Dr. Rasher is an internationally recognized leader, educator, and researcher in holistic financial wealth. For more than two decades, she's been practicing financial therapy and financial coaching. And among many achievements... Dr. Rasher actually created a national financial practice week in the United States of America. What an accomplishment Dr. Rasher was able to create. She also serves as a chair of research board for financial therapy clinic institute, along with many other boards. Her work has been featured in many news articles such as CNN, Forbes, Fox Business, NBC News, USA Today, Yahoo, and the list goes on. Dr. Rasher holds a PhD in personal finance planning from Kansas State University. Today, we really dive into the often overlooked emotional and psychological factors that relate to our personal finances. She really highlights the importance of compassion, openness, self-awareness, when it comes to cultivating a healthy relationship with our money. So if you want to dive deep into your relationship with money, allowing for more joy, satisfaction, awareness, understanding, then you're definitely going to love this conversation. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you can support the show in one or two ways. You can head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review, or you can share this episode or any other episode with a family, friend, or colleague. Anyone you think would enjoy these conversations. At the end of this conversation, I really felt good. I was really excited to continue to dive into my relationship with money and allow more compassion. I hope you find a lot of wisdom and insights in this conversation as well. And now, I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Erica Rusher. Dr. Rasher, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sean. So happy to be here. I'm excited to have a conversation with you, not only about how cold the weather can be. We have been chatting about how we both live in deep freezes right now, but let's talk about money. And we kind of were saying, let's have a fun conversation about money. And I think we can do that. So welcome. Thank you. I'm I'm positive we can have a fun conversation about money because money should be fun. It should be, but yet, it, oh boy, it can uh, bring out a lot of different emotions. And something that really interests me, and we navigate a lot of this on the podcast, is stories in and around money. So I thought we'd start with storytelling, I guess, maybe perhaps a bit of your story. And I think why stories are so 
meaningful to me is because often we see stories as like this sense of entertainment, but we know that storytelling is a fundamental part of being human. They help us share stories in ways that allow us to emotionally connect. And I think this is why a lot of people are interested in our money stories. So I I thought I would start with your story. Now, if the internet is correct, the things that I read on it, can you take us back to, I must have been in around college time when you had these great aspirations to be an estate lawyer, I believe it was a state lawyer, or practicing law in some way or another, but a little hiccup happened and you bombed the LSAT test. Did I, I bombed the LSAT. You know, I had this this idea that I was going to be an estate planning attorney. And, you know, that really stemmed from my, my, my own money story, right? My dad had multiple sclerosis and he died when I was 13. You know, when, when something like that happens, you know, that's a, that's a huge life event for a young person. But both of my parents were insurance agents. And so I grew up around insurance lingo. So I knew things at a very early age, like things like guaranteed insurability and, you know, topics around life insurance. And when my dad died, my dad had been uh, in the service. He'd been in the Air Force. And he had a small life insurance policy from, from that, which, you know, helped get my family through. But after he was diagnosed with MS, of course, you know, options for life insurance were limited. And so I really had this idea like, okay, it would be so cool to put myself in a role where I can help people plan, you know, for end of life. I lost a lot of passion for that along the way as an undergrad. I had started, you know, doing some radio DJing. I had a stint as a radio DJ in college. And I really kind of just lost interest. And it took me bombing the LSAT to to say, you know, this isn't for me. This isn't for me. And what I was absolutely certain about, though, was that I wanted to help people with their money. And I didn't know quite how to go about that. And so I ended up finding the Consumer Economics, now Personal Financial Planning Program at University of Missouri, Go Tigers. And I started my, my master's there. I, I worked as an insurance agent for a long time in, in the financial services arena. And then I ended up you know, getting my PhD, you know, at K-State, also Go Cats. So, you know, it's it's kind of this trajectory. And, and through each step of my money story, my history as it relates to that, you know, I've, I've really kind of broadened into and grown as a person in terms of helping and deeply wanting to help people really come to terms with their own money story and rewrite their, their new story, their new chapters on their terms, which is, is a, a feat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. You have this, as Dr. Klontz would call it, this financial flashpoint of your father passing and having these insurance proceeds. And really, you can hear how it influences your decisions and wanting to help in this estate lawyer perspective. And, and it really seems like you've come to more of the, like the human experience of money rather than what the law says we should or should not do. What is it about this like human side of money or the human experience of money that has naturally now, or not naturally, has observationally pulled you towards it versus what the law says as your initial, I guess, aspirations? Yeah, you know, I think to to be honest, I, I think it's very much a personality fit too. You know, from a, a personality <laughs> typing perspective, you know, I've always been drawn to getting to know people and getting to hear their perspectives on life. I'm, I'm a bit of a talker. I'm not so much of a person who, hey, I I don't know the best way to put this, but I really like to know a person's pain. I know that could probably sound maybe a little easy to, to some of the folks listening, but 
when you yourself, I think, have been through pain and you have different chapters in your story, I think there is a subset of people like myself who really are okay with leaning into the, the shadow side, the, the pain side of life and want to help walk other people through their pain. And that's, I think, what has really drawn me towards the work I do now is trying to help others work through the parts of ourselves that maybe we don't like or the parts of ourselves that need healing. And that's such a privileged place for me to have landed because there have been so many people, Dr. Fonts included. I mean, I can, I can think of, you know, 50 people off the top of my head who have been there for me along the way. And it's, I mean, it's, it's truly transformative. So many wonderful things you said there. You know, I, I was trained as a uh, financial planner. I'm a certified financial planner. And at the time, there was zero conversation. I, I, okay, I won't say zero. Very little conversations around the shadow side that you're talking about or this psychological side of money. And it was very technical. And what I, what I love about your answer is that, well, I mean, as humans, we are messy creatures. And often this financial planning field is touted or, or we're, we're expected to be this, I guess, non-emotional, perfectly perfect calculation that's going to get every money decision right. But like you said, is when you walk in your own, say it's shadows or come to terms with those parts of us that we may have been ignoring, there's this whole other element of compassion that we bring towards money that I feel like is what you're really really talking about. When it, when it comes to compassion, what role, if any at all, do you see it playing in financial conversations? Oh gosh, I, I think it's probably the the number one priority. And I, I learned this actually from Barry Tesler. You know, she's kind of one of the OGs of financial therapy. And I mean, she's just amazing with her art of money work. And I've had the privilege to work with her um, in her mentorship program. And she has this and puts forward this, this beautiful concept you know, this, this healing and growth, it happens in kind and compassionate spaces. And when you are somebody who can help cultivate a space that is kind and compassionate, that's where some amazing transformation can come through. But what can really come through for people is this, this sense of clarity. And I think this, this clarity around our money really does begin with compassion. And when, when you think about it, Sean, you know, we as, as humans, right, we're, we're often really good at being kind and compassionate and extending empathy and all of these things to other people without even almost a thought sometimes. You know, somebody messes up and makes a mistake, whether it be financial or otherwise. You know, we're, we're often there to lend support and oftentimes in non-judgmental and, and shame-free ways. But we often talk to ourselves much differently. We don't treat ourselves with that kindness and that compassion. And we guilt ourselves and we shame ourselves and we, we mistreat ourselves and we talk so poorly to ourselves. It's impossible to gain clarity when, when you're treating yourself the way you would never treat another person, probably not even a stranger on the street. So when you treat yourself like a stranger, that's probably the most uncompassionate thing you can do for yourself. And so getting and leaning into that, that human side of money, you know, kind of, I mean, the technical specs of, of personal finance are obviously very important, right? Mm -hmm. But when, when we're leaning towards ourselves and getting to know ourselves and, and seeking that clarity and taking the shame out of things, 
that's where we can see what we can do from the action side, from the practical side, from the technical side, and really see what we're made of because we know ourselves a little bit better. Your statement, taking the shame out, great statement. And kind of expanding on your point, I think if we get the technical side right and we don't take the shame out, those negative conversations that we're having with ourselves, for the most part, will still persist despite we might have got the technical side right. What has been your experience on ways that we can, again, your words, take the shame out? Yeah. I have have so many. (laughs) And I think there's been so many conversations around shame lately. You know, um, LinkedIn, I think, is a very, in this, in our niche, you know, I think it's it's very active and we we see a lot of talk around shame and, and trauma. And, and these things, they're, they're incredibly important things to talk about. So, so how do we do that? And you're right. You know, we can do everything right, technically, but we are not going to find that, that satisfaction if we continue to see ourselves as the problem. And I think that's the big distinction we need to make, you know, in, in the, the realm of shame. You know, if, if shame exists, that means you believe that you are the problem. You know, we're feeling guilty about a decision. Yeah, okay, but I, I made the wrong decision. Bad move. Shouldn't have done that. I feel guilt about that. But when you're in the shame space, you truly believe that it is you that is flawed, that there is something fundamentally wrong with you. And so doing that shadow work, I think is, is really key. And, you know, going back to, you know, work around money scripts, I think is, is absolutely very powerful. You know, that's been around for, for quite a while, but it's, it's important work that needs to be done. What are the things I believe about money? Why do I believe those things? Were those things, things I came up with on my own or were those things given to me? Did I inherit them from somewhere? You know, I do a lot of work in the the debt space now and it's it has been a very humbling experience. I had a lot of biases around that industry. Had you asked me 20 years ago if I would have found myself in the position I'm in now, I would have probably been like, yeah, no, that, no, no way. I've learned a couple of things in that space. You know, the first is debt doesn't discriminate. It doesn't. I've met plenty of people who are, you know, multi six figure earners who are over their heads in debt just as much as I've met, you know, people who are, you know, on the lower income side of the spectrum. Life happens. That's the human part of being a human being. Life is going to be. And no matter how well you prepare technically, right? Life can still happen. It can still throw you off track. And that said, Debt is something you have. It's not who you are. And so it's really moving yourself out of a shame space, whether you're rolling in the dough or or you're, you know, just stuck with tremendous amounts of debt over your head. It's not who you are. Your financial situation is not who you are. And I think when we're talking about, you know, things like money scripts or the things we've, the values uh, we've been given or that we've inherited, yeah, I think it's it's really key to take inventory of what those things are. So you can really get a good sense of, well, who am I in this equation? What is it that works for me? What values work for me? What doesn't work for me any longer? What do I kind of like and can I modify? You know, what needs to stay, what needs to go? So you can find yourself in a position where you can release yourself from that shame. It's the, it's the letting go and it's the readiness of letting go so you can propel yourself forward into whatever next iteration, next chapter. But you also have to be ready for that. 
I, I talk a lot about listening for the readiness. And when you are working with somebody who says, all right, I am getting a sense of, of who I am. And I'm noticing that my financial actions, my technical stuff, isn't really aligning with my values or who I really feel called to be. That's when I immediately come in and say, all right, you don't know what you don't know until you know, and now you know. And if you're ready, because now you know, then we can start letting go of that shame. So there does have to be some sort of awareness involved and be, and being able to name the shame. The naming of the shame, I think, is a key piece of this too. You got to name it. It's not a fun thing to name. No. No. It, what, what, that naming, why do you think it has so much power in helping us step towards that readiness? Oh, gosh. I, I think the answer is kind of easy, but, you know, you've, you've you know, I think as a kid, right? You've got monsters in the closets, right? But grownups have monsters in their closets, right? Mm-hmm. I want people to take their monsters out of the closet, sit them down at the coffee table, pour them a cup of coffee, ask them some questions. Who are you? Why are you here? What purpose have you served? What purpose may you continue to serve? And when are you going to get the heck out of here? Once you put a flashlight on the things in the dark that scare you, they can't scare you anymore. Putting names to things takes its power away. And when you can take the power away from something that has power over you and reclaim it for yourself, that's where some magic can really happen. But you have to be brave enough to pick up the flashlight or open that closet door and pour that cup of coffee and ask those monsters to come out and dance in the dark with you. I can't write fast enough for all these great <laughs> things to, to, to... What was that last part? To dance with you? Uh, how was yeah. The, I dance. Yeah, have a cup of coffee, yeah, take a dance. Spin yeah. around. Spin around. You know, you, you talked about, you used the parts ver- verbiage earlier, and it's really reminding me of Dick Schwartz's internal family systems, where he talks a lot about the, the internal parts of us. And what I mean by this, and I see this in this conversation with debt, we're talking about stories earlier. I think for the most part, when we see debt, especially in ourselves, or if we observationally see debt, we automatically assume a negative story. Debt's bad, which fuels, I'm hearing shame, like I'm bad. Versus, I, you know, the debt's bad. Or how did you word that? Debt is something you have, not who you are. But we, we tell ourselves these stories that I'm bad. And in Dick Schwartz's work, he talks about how these, these parts of us, even the ones that we perceive to be negative, say like envy, that it's not, I'm paraphrasing or I'm, I'm summarizing what he says, but it's not like it's bad and we have to get rid of that part. It's more so that's an adaptive or maladaptive part of us that was wounded some sort and it's coming out to dance with it or have this cup of coffee. So when it comes to debt, while the narrative might be like, debt's bad, I'm bad for having this debt, what stories have you seen people been able to uncover when they start to dance with their debt and not see it for just a number, but like the story behind that debt? And have you noticed people having these maybe transformations or these at least realizations that the debt is actually telling a story that's worthwhile to them. Yeah. You know, and I, I think bringing, the, you know, the family systems conversation into this is, is really interesting and, and key because, you know, so much of our, you know, most kids learn what they're going to learn about money before the age of nine, which is pretty frightening, especially if you're a, a parent of children. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, I've got a kid. I, my, my, my daughter is nine. My, my son is seven. My youngest is seven. And it's like, you, you, you learn these statistics, you're like, oh my gosh, what have I been teaching these kids about money? 
And so as we, as we go through our life, you know, the kids are sponges. And so if we don't know what we don't know until we know, when we're grownups, we have all this subconscious stuff that we've been funneling and trying to process. And we've got all these new experiences coming into our lives. You know, we move out of our family system and we're trying to kind of reconcile where we are in the world. And I think one of the very complicating factors when it comes to debt is not, is not only that piece of it, but we don't necessarily have a good sense of, of who we are, where our direction is going. And we are told so many things about personal finance, like, right? The, the rights and wrongs, the do's and don'ts, the, the blacks and whites of personal finance. And so, you know, you, you just said, you know, like debt is bad, right? You know, how many times have we, have we heard that? You know, there's, there's bad debt and there's good debt. <laughs> you know, you need to save 10% or is it 40%? You know, what's inflation doing? Like, and so there's all this messaging that, that happens around money, you know, when you're younger, you know, in your, in your, you know, environment. And then when you grow up, if you've got, you know, as a late teen, early twenties, you're getting a better sense of, you know, what, what society thinks is the black and whites, the do's, the don'ts, the goods, the bads. And so what, what I think tends to happen is there's this, this big gray area that kind of gets forgotten. But people are so focused on doing the good or the bad thing that they forget that there can be some creativity, there can be some flexibility, and there can be fun in this. But when people attach themselves so deeply to a good and a bad behavior and don't really understand that there's a whole lot of gray in the middle, this is where the, the shame really bubbles up in the debt space. Because so many people do, in my experience and the people I've worked with over the last you know, number of years, they know what to do with their money. They know. They know that they, you know, should have had an emergency fund. They know that they should have, you know, an investment account. They they know. They know. And so they feel very alone. And they do get into debt. You know, the people I've worked with, I mean, the pandemic came over as far as debt is just, I mean, it just, it, it's so overwhelming. There's that. You know, people have health problems. People go through wicked divorces. I've worked with people who have lost family members who like due to addiction and if, you know, carried funeral costs on their credit cards. This is what I talk about when I say debt doesn't discriminate. You know, I've, I've had, like you said, multi six figure earners who have been the victims of love schemes, like hundreds of thousands of dollars given away. You know, it's the stuff you, you see on Dr. Phil that nobody thinks is real. It's absolutely real. And it, it blows my mind every time I see it. And there's so much shame because they know, you know, they, they know what to do with their money. Yet money still remains taboo to talk about it. You know, we, we, we can hardly talk about money when, when money is good, right? Mm-hmm. Going around, I made a million dollars this year. Yeah. My boss is doing so great. Look at me. Nobody says that. I mean, and if they do say it, that's, that's a whole other can of worms, right? Yeah. But if we're hesitant to talk about money when it's good, we're certainly not going to talk about it when it's really bad. You know, because, because our money, our, our credit score, all of these things have become over the years from society, you know, a measure of our self-worth. You know, people I work with in the debt space or who are on a debt journey, so many of these things come up. You know, my, my dad, if he were still alive, he would, he would die a second time to know that I am not paying my creditors back or I can't pay my creditors back because I, I don't have the money. It's gone. I lost my job. My husband got sick. All of these things. And once people, I think, can 
again, from my experience, once people can separate themselves from the debt and look at them as two very separate and different things, that's where change starts to happen. And this isn't, you know, a a narrative and like shifting blame away. Again, most people know how they got into debt. Most people take accountability for it. But so many people carry the blame that is not theirs to carry. And when they can get rid of that, that's where some, some movement can go forward. When they can say, all right, I know my, my, my deceased father would be really upset with me, but he's not here and I have to do this for myself. And I'm also going to take this as an opportunity to tell a different story for my own children. Like it's, it's a really interesting cycle of, of growth and self-discovery that happens. And if, if anybody has been in debt, whether it's little debt or big debt or good debt or bad debt, you know, there's, there's so much anxiety and stress and negative repercussions to our, you know, emotional, mental, physical, spiritual health associated with that. Again, so many wonderful things here. This self-discovery, I think, is so fascinating when it comes to our money. In this context, we're talking about debt is when we get the courage. And to your point, it's not, it's not easy to really foster that curiosity to lean in and not flee from the discomfort. But when we do that, it's so fascinating. Where if someone told me this 10 years ago, I would have been, what? But if we lean into these money stories, there's the richness of self-discovery. And I would have never thought that 10 years ago. I've been like, wait, you're, 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 you're crazy. You're, you're like, you're probably going to live in Bali. And I don't know. I, I don't know why I said Bali, but like, you're, you, you know, you're just, you're, you're, you're going to manifest this. But speak to this, like this richness that comes not all the time. And I don't think it's straightforward is you lean into it and you get this richness. But can you speak? Perhaps it could be clients that you've experienced where you're working now or, or anywhere, but this, this richness that may come along with self-discovery. Mm. Ugh, I love this question for so many reasons because it's so much about allowing yourself. And, and this is the allowance piece. This is what I talk about when when there's readiness ready to happen. And it, it moves in the space of allowance where you can you know, kind of inform and identify what's giving a rise to that discomfort. It's, mm. drink. I'm, I'm going to feel uncomfortable anyway. I already feel uncomfortable. Why? Let me, let me name that discomfort. Let me identify that. And let me take it one step further and let me invite it in and sit with it in the discomfort and invite trust and go forward in trust. Even if it's only acknowledging that, you know, I, I trust that I'm here in this discomfort because there's something to learn here. And that is a powerful switch that can turn on when you allow that pressure on yourself to ease up a little bit and to lean into that discomfort and put it in a space of, maybe not a space, a reframing of, of self-discovery. Because for so many people I've worked with, financial planning as it is, it's not working. It's just it's, not. And, and, I, and I so relate to what you're saying about 10 years ago. I, I said it myself, you know, 10, 20 years ago, like self-discovery, you know, 
human side of money <laughs> their psychology like oh my gosh they would have thought we were nuts because this is a process of self-discovery and money is not just numbers you know we, we talk about how we are just not numbers I'm not my credit score I'm not you know <laughs> my mortgage amount I'm not my credit card debt people are not numbers people are beings and if we want a shift in being to occur, how are we as an industry, as practitioners, as providers, as just supporters, how are we inviting people to shift in their beat? Are we being acutely aware and keenly in tune to whether or not somebody is ready or expressing signs of readiness to explore more than the numbers? And trust is such a key component of that. You know, we, we, we want to be your trusted financial advisor. How many times have you heard that? I cringe. I do. Like, I do too. I have so many financial planning friends that I respect and love tremendously. Unfortunately, I, I don't see that as much now, but you know, that was, that was a thing, you know, 10, 15 years ago. That's how you market yourself. I'm going to be your trusted advisor. Well, everybody's saying that. How do I know who to trust? And when I work with people in my coaching practice in particular, the one thing I always say is when it comes down to, to you making decisions, if you're going to trust anybody, it should be yourself. Don't put more trust in me than you put in yourself. And I think that is such a, a key thing in moving the needle forward into self-discovery is how do we help people discover themselves enough to where they find that trust in themselves. Because so many people don't trust themselves when it comes to their money, or they might just a little bit. And going back to what I see with people on a debt journey in particular, they know what they're supposed to do with money. And I think this applies to most people. You know, they know enough, you know, of what they should and shouldn't be doing, but they feel dumb to ask questions. They feel like they should know more than they know. And so they might not trust themselves at all. But when you get into a financial situation that is contrary to, to what you want for yourself, whether that be debt or you make a bad investment or any of those things that can happen along this you know, financial planning spectrum, there's trust in yourself that has to be rebuilt. And that is painful for people. That is uncomfortable. Also a part of the self-discovery process. Painful self-discovery. And, you know, that pain, I, I think it speaks to what you're talking, that shadow side of us where when we get to that level of trust, I, I can imagine so many life lessons that along our self-discovery phase that we can uncover, but it requires that trusting ourselves. When it comes to financial advice, the way you're talking here from a coaching lens, it really interests me because the, what you're saying there, if I can sit with a person, a client, however you want to call them, client, person, doesn't matter. But if I can show them, and it seems like this is what you're doing, that I trust you to trust yourself by, you know, if I'm listening to them as the coach and I'm not telling them to do, 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 much of our industry has done. I'm hearing a lot of you talk about this trust. How, if anything at all, have you seen the client shift when you're showing that, no, no, I trust you to make the right de decision I think to me, it speaks to this idea is like when someone trusts me, it gives me permission to trust myself. Do you experience that? Yeah, it's the allowance. It's the, 
I, I spoke earlier about, you know, being a space holder, you know, and that's, that's how I really treat, you know, my, my coaching sessions is I, I am cultivating a space, cultivating, and this comes from, you know, years of, you know, really great, you know, training I've had with really great mentors, you know, but it's, I'm, I'm here to, to hold space for you in a kind and compassionate, shame-free space where we can together explore all of those things that, that personal gravity that is holding you down and preventing you from getting to where you want to go. So when I am working with people and they have permission to not only talk about their personal gravity, but also let go of it if they want to. If they mm-hmm. want to. Mm-hmm. You really emphasize that if. It's that readiness. It's the, we can get there or maybe we don't, you know, and, and that's okay. It has everything to do with the readiness. It has everything to do with this process of self-discovery. It has everything to do with moving forward in a way that feels aligned with, with however you want to call it, your soul, your spirit. Something is different about the observations you've made in the past and what you're observing now and the meaning you're assigning to them in the present now. Because we can spend years and years and years, right, ruminating on all of the things that happened in our childhood, our traumas, our, our pains, our losses. And then one day we start to think about those things a little bit differently. It's the, I trust that I'm here. Maybe it's just because there's something here for me to learn. And it might be that I'm just seeing this in a different light. And I'm the one who hands people the flashlight so they can turn it on. I hear that they, quoting they turn it on, seems like a key word there. If people listening are thinking that, you know what, I'm sensing this readiness. While, of course, the self-discovery is not a quick fix, easy thing. You can say one thing and we got it tomorrow. But say someone's listening and it's really resonating with their soul, to use a word that you just talked about. What would be a way? And I say a way because there isn't the way, but what a way that we could start inviting this trust into the self-discovery? I think the very first thing I would I would say is, is let's slow it down. Slow things down a little bit. You know, we, especially if, if we're, you know, talking in, in terms of, of what we're doing with our money or what we're not doing with our money, what we're doing with our careers or our personal lives. I mean, there's, there's so many things. And the thing is, money intersects with all of those things. It's, it's very difficult, right? To, let's say, you know, you, you want to skip the cor- corporate hustle, right? And you want to lean into your, you know, side hustle. And that's, and that's great. I, I'm a big believer in multiple streams of income. Let's diversify, diversify your investments and get multiple streams of income. Perfect, wonderful, awesome. Let's do that. But how do you, how do you reconcile, you know, your side hustle being more aligned with your soul or your life's calling or what you feel to be your calling and the drudge of whatever's holding you back in this, this job right here. And then money intersects every, everywhere here. And your spouse is telling you, you know, you don't need to quit your job. We can't afford it, you know? And, and so you get into just this, this head spin. Right. And so it's, it's coming back to yourself a little bit. It's like, all right, let's, let's slow it down a little bit. Let's take things one step at a time. You know, it's a, it's a lot like, you know, telling an 18 year old, Hey, if you save a hundred dollars a month, you know, 
you're going to be a millionaire by the time you retire, like all good. Get trying to convince a hundred, uh, 18 year old to, to save a hundred dollars a month is like going to the dentist. It's very difficult, very hard to pull. So how do we get people to, to that point? And it's, it's slowing it down and, and putting things into a, a more present frame of reference. Let's not talk five years into the future. Let's talk about what's going on now. What is it we can work on now that can help you identify the, the things that are really good, the things you would like to see different, the things that can be worked on now, the things you're ready to work on now. Because, you know, it, it does happen. You know, we've got some personalities out there who are just like, I just, I just absolutely want to quit my job tomorrow and I'm going to sell, you know, my digital art on Etsy. And that's awesome. But have you ever done that before? Well, no. Let's talk about that. What is driving that? Where is that discomfort coming from? You know, we talk about being uncomfortable. We talk about identifying that. Let's invite that in. Let's, let's talk about those things. Let's, I'm going to hand you this flashlight. I invite you to turn it on and let's, let's take a little peek at that. And those conversations, you know, go every which way they do. And sometimes we, we find things in the dark, dusty corners of said monster closets that we totally forgot were there. And that's kind of the cool stuff that comes up. I really appreciate this idea of, Inviting the discomfort in, I think at times the narrative was for a while that if I want to quit my job and sell my art on Etsy, go do it. YOLO, you only live once, like lean into that calling. But you bring a really good point. It's like, what is the origin of that discomfort? And maybe it's, it's, it's hiding something more meaning, maybe not more insightful that can lend itself to that self-discovery phase as opposed to just quickly reacting to it and being like, yes, go do it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, and I think, you know, there's been, there's great advice out there. You know, there's dangerous advice <laughs> somewhere, somewhere everywhere in between. You know, and I'm a, I'm a big supporter of, you know, people who want to go, you know, pursue your passions. Great. Mm-hmm. You want to go host a retreat in Bali. And I love that she said Bali because I think that, <laughs> I think I've been invited to more retreats in Bali than anywhere else in the world. I still haven't been. But I hear it's lovely. But I think there is that narrative out there that is, you know, kind of perpetuated. Yeah, you only live once, you know, go, go live your dreams, go do all of these things. And I certainly want you to go do all the things. I, I, I think most people would be like, yeah, go, go do it. But let's, let's slow it down a little bit. Is this something we have to do right now? What is, what is the villain origin story of your Etsy shop? Mm-hmm. Let's look back mm-hmm. to that. And why is it you want to do this? Is it because you're, you know, not happy with your hours at work? Is it because you feel like you'd rather work from home? Or do you feel like you just don't want to work? <laughs> I mean, it can be all of these things. And and so for, for many people who are in a state of discomfort, I don't necessarily want to call this a grass is greener scenario because sometimes the grass is greener. Mm-hmm. And taking a leap of faith can absolutely be what is needed, right? I've taken a few of those in my day and they were leaps of faith, but they were somewhat prepared leaps of faith. You know, you don't want to necessarily leap blindly because of the aspect and the role that money plays, you know, in our life. And what I find is when people take a leap of faith and they do it from a place of fear or scarcity, that's where they get in trouble. If they can take the leap of faith and they can 
leap wholeheartedly. They can leap comfortably. They know what challenges they can potentially run into. They they have a whole clearer picture and they take that leap of faith and they're like, I'm going to leap. And whatever happens, happens and I'm okay. Either way, that's where things are different. And I think that's the huge distinction. And so for for people who are dealing with discomfort or they're they're having a hard time making a decision, you know, that decision could be related to all kinds of things, you know, childhood, their personality type, their relationship status, their job, their location, like all these factors go into that. If they can identify all of these things and piece it together, they can act and make decisions, not from a place of fear or lack or discomfort, because they have already worked through the discomfort and the fear and the lack and the scarcity. And that's that's a really cool place to be. Yeah. And, you know, not to sound so cliche here, but it seems to me when you act from that space, even if, let's talk this Etsy shop, say the Etsy shop doesn't work out, but if you're acting from that place of, you know, the authentic self, mm-hmm. you would have learned so much about the self-discovery phase to yourself that it's not, I guess it's not, it's not a fail because you didn't get the Etsy shop. I'm sure there's tons of valuable lessons. Whereas I, I think if you jumped on that Etsy shop and it got super busy and you actually hated it and you're running from something, now you're this Etsy famous person. I don't know if they have those, but if they did, now you're making pictures you didn't want to make because you're running from fear. <laughs> so. Yeah. And and then you put yourself in that same cycle, right? And I do see that that running dynamic. It's that kind of running chasing dynamic that, that we see. And, and I have seen that. You know, one of my, I think one of the stories that resonates most with me is, you know, I, I worked with a, a person who was a coach, like a life coach, and had, had made a complete career change, quit job, decided I'm going to be a life coach. Lots of good life experience, not knocking the person or anything like that. So went and got a coaching certification. Great first step. Went and got another one. Went and got another one. And so we, we ended up with a life coach with ton of certifications, but no clients no marketing strategy, tens of thousand dollars in debt with coaching certifications. What it really came down to was the, I'm running from the idea that I'm not good enough with just this one coaching certification. I need to have all of these before I can go market myself as somebody who is a valuable life coach. And that had pretty significant financial consequences attached to it. And so it's really helping people try to find out, you know, in this process of self-discovery that you can be good enough. Good enough is okay. It doesn't have to be perfection. We hear that practice makes perfect, right? Practice makes progress. The goal should be progress, not perfection. Whether it's personal goals, career goals, financial goals, it's making the progress towards that. And anytime we attach perfection we automatically start discounting the trust we have in ourselves. Automatically do that. And I see, I see that a lot you know, with people who think another degree, another certification, that this is somehow going to make them see, seem better. Well, if you've got enough to get going, get going. Make that progress. You don't have to do it all right now. And it, again, it's, it's releasing that pressure valve that I was talking about. It's leaning into that discomfort. It's exploring that trust, inviting that trust in and allowing yourself to, to release that pressure valve on you a little bit and make, make some transformations in your own life. And that's something only 
only you can do. Nobody external can, can do that for you. Even the best coach or a financial planner or advisor, if a person doesn't want to do something, they're, they're not going to do it. We're all flashlight holders in a way. We are all flashlight holders in a way. That is really good. I went into a bit of a trance as I thought you were talking to me. There's this thing that I'm delaying doing and education has always been a thing that I've like, oh, I'll go do that. And then, you know, that'll make me feel like I have a voice or I'll be noticed. And seriously, you were talking, I was like zoned in. I'm like, wait, no, I'm doing a podcast right now. This isn't, but it's very true. I'm glad we recorded that section. But it's true. You know, we put so much pressure on ourselves to be and do better. But when is enough enough? You know, we, we can't take it with us when we go. And it's it's better to, to start than to not start. It's better to make do with what you have than to forget about what you do have. We are so easy to dismiss ourselves as a resource because a lot of us haven't been taught that we are a resource, that we have to get validation from you know, our colleagues, our peers, our professors, our mentors, our friends, our family. And we forget what it means to seek internal validation. And that is something that can only come when, when you trust yourself. And when it comes to our finances, I, I think there's you know one thing I definitely want to highlight here. Is cultivating trust in yourself when it comes to your money doesn't mean that you have to know the answer to everything. You know, you and I were joking before we went on about my my love for estate planning and and all things taxes, right? I say that very tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know enough about estate planning or taxes to to feel confident that I could, you know, in ten years be able to tackle that on my own. So I'm not going to spend, you know, twenty hours on Google. <laughs> trying to figure out how to do my estate plan or, you know, long-term tax planning. I'm going to call somebody about that. That is trust in yourself. That's knowing that I don't have to do everything. I can call a few people and say, you know, hey, these are the questions I've got. This is what I'm looking for. Can you help me? You do not have to know everything about everything. And once you release that pressure off when it comes to your money, I think that's huge. It's, you know, it's leaning into the things you know you're really good at owning that, having fun with it, but it's also leaning into the idea that I don't have to know everything about everything. Even though sometimes I feel like I'm supposed to know, it's okay that I don't. And that's why there are people who do these things for a living. It's hard for people to do that. It's hard for people to to not feel like they simultaneously have full ownership of their money, but no control over it. That's hard. That's a really hard place to be. As you're talking about this, I can't help but hear the lyrics to my daughter. She's five. His favorite song, Let It Go by Frozen. Oh, yes. I listen to that song. I'm like, there's a lot of wisdom in here. Let it go. Like, and it, mm-hmm. I, What I'm hearing you say is that I think that there's wisdom in that ability to let it go that I don't, I don't need to know the estate planning side. And like, you know, I'm not less than for not knowing. In fact, I mean, that's a lot of self-awareness to be like, okay, I'm okay with this, that I want to lean on some help. Yeah, I want to lean on some help. Does the rain really bother you that much, Elsa? No, No. it doesn't. I like when it rains. Yeah. I like it. And I like to stay inside when it rains. I enjoy watching it. But do I want to be out in the rain? Not necessarily. The cold, don't want to be out in it. It's okay. But 
the estate planners, they like it. The tax mm-hmm. planner, they like it. That's their cold. That's their reign. You know, let, let yourself find safety in the spaces that don't bother you. If you know that budgeting doesn't bother you and you're pretty good on it, at it, focus on that. Mm-hmm. That's a really important skill. That's really hard. Like, it is. Dieting, like it often doesn't work for a lot of different reasons. But if that's something you're good at, you know, lean into that and let other people take care of the rest. You can like being financially stable. You can even like all these things, but it doesn't mean that you have to be in the weeds with it. You just don't. And you don't have to know everything there is to know about it. Ever. It's important to be informed. Again, we don't want to take a completely hands-off approach. But you should definitely know who you're working with. But but trust yourself to know that you can make good decisions and, and who you hire on your financial team. I, I see the time. And I want to respect your time here as this conversation has flown by for me. We start out talking about stories, your money story. And as we know, money tells stories. And I guess what I'm really hearing is the more we lean into the process of self-discovery and get that flashlight that we hold, it gives us the opportunity to really come home to ourselves. And it seems like that's where this peace, contentment, and ease comes from. And makes me think of this idea that I brought up Elsa's song, but we in life, like this, this process is really neat because we only have one song to sing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we don't get another song. And I like this, this conversation around really inviting that discomfort so we can come home to ourselves. And I would have never thought I would be talking this in around money, but here we are. So thank you I for know. today. Well, thank you. And, you know, and I, I love that because. I work with a lot of amazing people and and I just, I'm thrilled to be doing the work I do. But at the end of the day, all of us are just walking each other home. And sometimes that's that's home to ourselves. Sometimes it's home home. But there are so many beautiful stories yet to be written. And it's, it's helping people find the pen, pick it up and write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. Good in life is temporary. Bad in life is temporary. But we're not alone. And when you know that you're not alone, whether you're in debt or you're struggling with, with trying to figure out investing or whatever it is you're, you're dealing with or you're building a business or, or how am I going to, you know, sell my financial coaching services to people if you're an entrepreneur, you know, in your case, you know, like, how am I going to build this podcast? How am I going to make it, you know, something meaningful and and human. And all of us have a story. And if anybody who tells you they don't have a story, well, they're just not telling you the truth. And the more we can share our stories with each other in these kind and compassionate spaces, the better humankind is going to be as a result. And the less shame we will feel and the more connected and whole we will feel not only to ourselves, but to those around us. And that's a glorious, beautiful thing, isn't it? That is glorious and beautiful. I mean, that just felt good in the fibers of my being. I recall being at a financial planning conference like 10, 15 years ago, and this guy's like, oh, you know, as financial planners, we got to really show our financial house. So he's like, so here I am. And he's, like, he's like showing all his net worth and all these like 
these hard numbers things. He's like, I show clients this. And it just felt wrong. Anyways, what you said just feels, I guess, this this idea of coming home to ourselves. So thank you for that. You're welcome. I really appreciate this conversation. Now, your money story. If you had to write a book today about your money story, where you are at your your journey, what would the title of the book be? Oh my gosh. I don't know. This is such an on-the-spot question. <laughs> that was, I'm sorry, it was on the spot. Oh God. What would it be? What's yours? <laughs> um well, I'll tell you. The title of my book would be Finding Mr. Shy. I would need a catchy subtitle, but it would be Finding Mr. Shy. And maybe Mr. like yeah. Mr. Shy is my inner money critic. Oh, see, you put me on the spot. Now I'm just <laughs> that's a tough question. Maybe I should delete this question. Oh gosh. Trying to think, I don't. I don't know what mine would be. This yeah. is. I, I've never been asked this question. It's a great question, though. I'm. I'm going to think about mine too. Perhaps by the time we release it, we can put both of ours in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, we'll do the show notes. Okay. Show notes. I, feel like, I feel like mine would be something like along the lines of like it would something be like millennial related. Um, because I'm an old millennial. Old millennial. I just turned forty this last year, and I'm feeling it. Well, well, happy what? birthday. Millennial, millennial adventures and dating, oh. debt, discovery. I don't know. Something fun. I don't know. Show notes. Show notes. Show notes it is. Okay. Now, my curiosity is, has been percolating since I've been preparing for this. Okay. How on earth did you co-found a national holiday? Well, you know, when I look back into the, the things I never thought I would do in my career, that was was one of them. <laughs> But no, um, so really, you know, it, it was born of me starting to, to explore the, the debt space a little bit and really start to help people, you know, along their debt journeys. And, you know, financial literacy month is, is every April, as we know. And, you know, financial literacy is just obviously very important. One of the things I, I think I've, I've observed and really kind of spurred, you know, the, this discussion. How do we move people beyond debt or the the financial patterns or behaviors that you know really kind of keep them held back? And you know, financial literacy again is is wonderful, but sometimes it's a lot like learning French in high school. And if we don't practice it daily, we we lose the information, or we have a general idea of again what we should be doing, good, bad, in between, but. We don't know actually how to put that into practice. And so that was really, you know, built upon, you know, building upon financial literacy by right, really encouraging and engaging people in a daily practice of, of those new financial behaviors or the things they're learning about themselves in the process of self-discovery. So that's when National Financial Practice Week was born. It coincides with uh, Financial Literacy Month. It is the last week uh, last full week of April. Uh, this year, it is April 22nd through 26th, and it is its first year. Isn't that exciting? That is that is so exciting. Yeah. I mean, well done. Like, you talk yeah. about, like, are people talking about system change, and there it is. So. Yeah. I just really want people to to not forget to to practice what they, they learn or explore. And it's, again, it's that curiosity. It's, it's keeping... Keeping things real. It's, we can, we can hear things and we hear things in passing. We know 
that financial literacy for for all it does, you know, it it falls short because there's no continuous or limited, I don't want to say no, very limited continuous engagement, you know, in in our society and in our social structures to really help keep people going. And if if we can just keep keep practicing, keep keep working on those new financial behaviors, whether they're coming from the inside or the outside. I know we're we're not talking about external validation here, but like what are we learning? What are we healing from? And how can we bring that to what we do every day to help get us better with money? Well, well done. That that is, <laughs> I mean, so many accomplishments you've had. And this beyond that level of impact is fantastic. I'm in Canada, so we'll have to observe it from uh, up north. But um and our financial literacy month is November. So that's I didn't realize oh, we were okay. different. Yeah. Um, all right. I guess it's when we're about to all freeze up here in November. <laughs> and now my final question, and I've asked every guest this question. Let's imagine now you're at end of life, whatever age it is, it is. You're in a place that brings you complete ease, peace, and contentment. And you're sitting on this front porch. Maybe it's in Bali. I don't know. But you're looking out at the ocean, a meadows, whatever it is, and you're you're at complete ease. And you decide to write a letter to your children's children on what you learned on how to have a how to have a happy, healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? It would be very much, very much rooted in um, don't stop believing in magic. As we age, you know, I think about being a kid, right? Or I, I watch my children now, and they approach everything right now, obviously through the eyes of a child. There's so much magic and wonder in the world. And over time, we we forget that magic exists. It, it, we can't see it anymore. And I've been a person who's always clung on to the idea that magic still exists, no matter what anybody tells me. <laughs> <laughs> magic still exists, but you have to look for it. You have to look for it because there's going to be a lot of people who tell you that it doesn't exist. And I'm not talking about magical thinking here. I want to make that clear. But while so many people are looking for the negative in life, the the triggers, if you will, look for the glimmers, look for the joy, look for the hope, look for the things that you have that bring you happiness in your present every day and hold on to those things tightly because there are so many systems and institutions and people who will try and take that magic away from you. And that magic is always in you. And that's where it will remain. But you have to be on the lookout for the magic. And once you stop looking for the magic, all downhill from there. That would be my theme. That would be my letter. And then I'm a Slytherin. So we're a big Harry Potter family. So I would definitely have some sort of Harry Potter reference in that as well. But Did you know the reference? I guess the book, the, the letter has not it, been written. It would, it would be something along the lines of like, Slytherins are, are better than Gryffindor. Okay. This, this is going to be a great letter. No one has said, don't stop believing the magic yet. And it's so, so great. I When you said that we see the or your kids, I forget exactly what you said, but they see life through, I don't know the word you said, but basically play and are fun. And I, I just recently read the book called The Fun Habit by Dr. Michael Rucker. He he studies fun. He's going to be on the podcast. But uh, so yeah, fun was... Be to look it up. Yeah, it's a great book. Fun, fun's been on my mind, but it, it kind of coincides with this magic. But the other day when it was minus 40 here, 
here it is talking about the cold again. Uh, a friend of mine, he's a dad. We're picking our kids up after school and they're freezing at the door waiting for the kids. And I decided to, I'm like, I'm going to have fun. And I just like, I ran at him as if it was our two seven-year-olds seeing each other running at him. And I just went up and gave him a big hug. And he's like, what are you doing? And it was fun. It was a bit magic. So anyways, your, your thing made me think of that. No, that's magic. You know, it's, yeah. it's in the little things. It's in the, it's in the things that bring you joy. Well, thank and you. But sometimes don't have an explanation. Sometimes things don't have an explanation. And that's okay. Let because they're magic. Things, and without explanation, have have the meaning of magic for you. This has been fun. This has been very fun. We said it was going to be fun before we recorded. Fun. We set the tone for fun. Yeah. I feel like it's well, been fun. Thank you so much. For listeners who want to have more fun and look at the work that you're doing, where would you point them to? And we, We're going to talk about your, your, your crypto goddess side and we didn't yeah. get to, I was very curious, but I, I got two minutes left. So another conversation, but where would you point people to? Yeah, we can. So the best way to reach out to me or connect with me is on LinkedIn. I do. I mean, that's pretty much my, my hub, if you will, in terms of socials, the socials freak me out. Otherwise like TikTok, Mm-mm. can't do it. At least not yet. I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. LinkedIn is the best place to find me. If you want to get in touch with me directly, my email is Erica, E-R-I-K-A, Rasher, R-A-S-U-R-E, at gmail.com. Feel free to email me, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, always happy to have a conversation, meet new friends, talk about how we can all help walk each other home. I like that. Walk each other home. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'll include those in the show notes and possibly, I don't want to overcommit, but our book titles for Money Stories and thank you again. <laughs> overcommit. Yeah. Wait, the underpromise overcommit or something? Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. Well, I thank you, you so much. And underpromise. You do that too. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's been yes. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated Effort podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Please check out Dr. Rusher's work online. All the links are included in the show notes. If you found this episode interesting, I think you'd also like episode number 95, Finding Fulfillment, Happiness, and a Meaningful Life with Dr. Anna Yusuf. Until next week, have yourself a great one.